but let's get started. I'm in chapter 20. Um, let me, I think almost all of you have been here, but uh, chapter 20, I'm going to go through kind of quickly, as you'll see in a minute, but just remember the context. David is now a fugitive. He is beginning to uh, really run from Saul, and we'll see what happens as we move into chapter 21 in just a moment. But chapter 20 is important for one reason. The son of Saul, Jonathan, is, as we have talked before, and just to remind you, is absolutely settled on the fact that David's going to be the king. And uh, somewhat symbolically, you might remember a couple of, uh, two weeks ago, he gave his cloak to David, he gave his sword to David. He's recognizing it. He's the firstborn of Saul. He would have the right to claim the monarchy, but of course God has made a decision. He accepts that. But in chapter 20, David uh, has to convince Jonathan that his dad really is out to kill him, that is, kill David. And that's what chapter 20 is all about. Uh, Jonathan is a bit skeptical at first. I, I, David, I'm not sure you're right. I know Dad has had his fits, but I don't know if you're right. So that's what this chapter is about. It's a little complicated because some of the, the symbolic things that they do uh, to, to basically uh, try to facilitate this convincing that Jonathan, yeah, he is really against you. So let's get started. I'm particularly interested in focusing on chapter uh, 20, verse 30 and following, when Saul turns on his son, too. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 20, then David fled from Naot in Ramah. Remember, that's where he had been. We looked at that last week. Uh, That's that kind of a humbling of Saul again, all that happened. And came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father? And he seeks my life. And he said to him, that he would be Jonathan, said to him, David, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So, again, if you follow the dialogues, Jonathan doesn't believe that Saul is really out to kill David. David, verse 3, but David vowed again, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So what happens here in the next cluster of verses from verse 4 down to verse 11, they propose a test to convince Jonathan that Saul really is out to get David. So I'm going to read this. Uh, it's, I think, fairly self-explanatory, but let me read it. This is about a new moon, new moon festival. This is part of the, the ceremonial festivals of Israel. And every month when the new moon, and you know what I mean by the new moon, don't you? When the new moon would show in the sky, they would celebrate because this was an agricultural ceremony and feast to the Lord. And Jonathan said to David, Whenever, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new man, new man, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. Often that feast would last for three days till the moon is fully, fully up. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly has to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, the city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clans. 
If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Whether it's guilt in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? Kind of exaggerated language, but what David is laying it on the line. And Jonathan said, far be it from you. I, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come upon you, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said to David, get us go, go into the field. So they went into the field. And here they set this kind of elaborate ceremony to determine uh, whether Saul is actually out to get him or not. And Jonathan said to David, I'm in verse 12, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Now, I want you to just notice that. It's Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. That's the covenant name of God. And, and what, what Jonathan is proposing here, based on a vow and an oath to the Lord. So he's using that strong covenant language. When I've sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But it should it please my father do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. Also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away. Just a real quick note there. That phrase, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I that's another vow. That's an oath. That's covenant oath language. In Hebrew, I mean, Jonathan is taking this very seriously. Finally, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, and I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Look at that language. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So the language of verse 12 through 17 is covenant language. They're making a vow. They're taking an oath before the covenant God of Israel. And if you'll notice again, verse 14, Jonathan had asked this before. He's asking it again. When you become king, don't cut off my house. Don't kill me and my relatives. May your steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord, be shown to me. And we've talked about that before. That that word, or it's a phrase actually, steadfast love is chesed. It's that loyal covenant love. So, I mean, this we've, we've seen this discussion before, but they're reaffirming their covenant relationship with one another. And so that's the basis. Jonathan is now wanting to test, is my dad really trying to kill David? And David says, he is. Now you've got to be convinced of that. And so Jonathan is saying, if I'm convinced of this, you're going to be the king. Don't kill me or kill my relatives, I promise. And he swears his loyal love to, to, to Jonathan. And so that, that's a very important, I mean, it seems redundant to you because we've seen this before. Actually, we're going to see it one more time. But it's this, this bond between Jonathan and David, but it's also, it's also an, an example, I think, of the righteousness of David, the faithfulness of David, and the integrity of David. Whereas Jonathan is now almost 
ready to say, yes, my dad is out to get you. We'll see what happens here in a minute. What does John's faith? His, his, his what? Faith? Faith? Very strong. Here, I mean, like, so would we expect to see Jonathan there in heaven? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, he's one of the guys I want to meet. I have, uh, um, they've set up an interview schedule for me uh, when I get to heaven, and Jonathan's part of that interview schedule. That, of course, is not true. I just made that up. By the way, uh, I want to, I didn't mention, I don't think I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about David and Jonathan. Jonathan is about 30 years older than David. So he's, he's, he's much older than David at this point. And um, there, there are um, there's some evidence of this in the earlier part of the book. But uh, they're, they're, they're often depicted as about the same age. That's not true. Jonathan is much older than David. And so that he is even agreeing that David is going to be the king and not him is just evidence again of his faith, trust in the Lord, because the Lord has declared this. And as his dad, Saul, who did not follow the Lord and and did not listen to the Lord, Jonathan does. So Jonathan is an exemplar of faith and trust in the Lord, and he is willing to acknowledge that David is going to be the king. I'm not. Now, what's tragically going to happen, and of course, I think you know this, but we're only a few chapters from this. When the battle at Mount Gilboa occurs, Jonathan will be killed by the Philistines. And then at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, David will issue this wonderful lament for Jonathan. It's, 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 a, it's like a hymn. It's, we'll, we'll study that after Christmas. But it's this relationship between these two. Is Dave, Solomon, excuse me, Jonathan is deferring to David. Jonathan understands what God has done and is recognizing that he's going to be the new king. And he, Jonathan, is very much in that covenant relationship with the Lord, unlike his father. The Bible has set up a contrast between the faith of Jonathan and the fear and lack of faith of his father. And we saw that when he launched that raid against that Philistine garrison and such a victorious thing in terms of the, the, the battle with the Philistines. All right, now, okay. Now let's look at what happens now as they set up this. It's kind of elaborate. I'm going to try and go through it quickly. But it's, it's it, just to convince Jonathan that his dad is really out to get David. Verse 18, then Jonathan said, Tomorrow is a new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. We read about that earlier. Third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter is at hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a young man, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, and you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it's safe, you're not in danger. But if I say to the youth, Look to the arrows, are beyond you, then... The Lord has sent you away, and as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Again, that language of, of that covenant language. So it's it's kind of it almost is silly, but they're setting it up so that Jonathan is not directly going to talk to David 
because that could be a threat in his life. So they're setting up this kind of scheme, shooting these arrows. If the arrows go here and I say this to the young man, then you know you can come, everything's fine. If I shoot it there and say this young man, then you know my dad's out to get you. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new man came, the king sat down to eat food. The king, the king there saw. The king sat on the seat, and other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat at Saul's side. Abner is David's uncle. And David's place was empty. Verse 26. Saul did not say anything that day. He thought, well, something's happened. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Meaning ceremonially unclean. It doesn't mean he didn't wash his hands. He's ceremonially unclean. Second day, verse 27. The day after the new moon, David's place was empty. Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And would you observe something there? He calls him the son of Jesse. He doesn't call him David. In the Hebrew culture, that's an insult. So, I mean, already Saul is sensing something's going on here. And so he refers to him, which is really the language of insult. Continuing. Where am I? Verse 28. Jonathan said to Saul, David, earnestly ask leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to come and be there. So now, if I found fame of your eyes, let me go away and see your, my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now, you know, what John just says is not true, but that's set up as the test. Is my dad really out to get David? Now, verse 30 is a very intense verse. But Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said, you, son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, the ESV is very kind there. Using your imagination, can you really imagine what he said? You son of a... Sure. All right, you got it. We don't need to talk about it. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very offensive. Because, in effect, he's charging him with being a bastard. And he's not. I mean, Jonathan is his legitimate son, for, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, this is <coughs> all this anger and this delusional paranoia is now turned on his son, Saul, turned on his son. I didn't know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. I mean, guys, this is really strong Hebrew euphemistic language that he's using. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, if you were Jonathan, are you now convinced that your dad is out to get David? I mean, the language that he uses here is intense language. And this is the father talking to the son. Saul to Jonathan. Jonathan answered his dad, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33. Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So he has, Saul has not only cursed his son and charged his son with disloyalty, He's just cried to kill his son. 
So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food for the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father disgraced him. And so I'm, I'm going to skip verse 35 down to verse 41 because they just go through what they'd agreed, the arrows are shot and so on. Pick it up, verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone. He fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another. They wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Hebrew would be shalom, because you have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. He rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, it's going to be a number of years till Jonathan sees David again. Jonathan will see David again. But it, it's going to be a, a time. So this is a, for David and for Jonathan, this would have been an emotionally wrenching time. Because the, the sequence of events that we've been studying has been building to this. But now Jonathan, is at, which is the whole point of this, is absolutely convinced that his dad is trying to kill David. Because now, not only has he, he saw in plan to try to kill David, he just tried to kill his son. And so you, you have the intensity and emotion of this separation of these two very close friends, all because of, of Jonathan's dad. It's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable situation in, in, in the real sense of that word. <clears throat> so David now, for the next little over 10 years, is going to be on the run. He will not. He will. He will not be in the kingdom for over ten years, and uh, he's going to be out. As a matter of fact, he's going to be outside the kingdom. And I'm saying kingdom. I mean the covenant kingdom, the land grants that God had given to Israel. He's going to be in Philistine territory. He's going to be in Moab, and so I mean this is a disorienting time for David. It's an unsettling time for David. Let's go back to what we said last week. Why is God doing this? Or if you want to use this language, why is God permitting this? To develop David's character and to build David's faith. David has been anointed king by Samuel. This occurred a, a, a couple of years earlier. But from God's perspective, and correctly, that would be correct, that would be accurate, David's not ready to be king. God has to develop him, grow him, mature him. To become the king, to develop David's character, and to build David's faith. God takes his time in developing his leaders. The Bible is filled with that. Did it with Moses, did it with Paul, did it with Peter. Uh, and I can keep, keep going. All right. Everybody okay online too? Are we all set? Chapter 21 is, uh, oh, is a terribly, um, terribly tragic, tragic section um, because of what happens to the priests of God. So let's, let's get into this. David is now on the run. Now, we're going to, we're going to see this at, at the end of this chapter. A group of individuals are also going to start following David. And this group of individuals is going to swell to a total of 600, but it's starting. 
These are displaced, disadvantaged individuals who have suffered under Saul's reign. And they're going to be developing a loyalty to David. This, it's going to, as I said a moment ago, it's going to swell to 600 men. This is going to be the core of David's army. This core will be the core of the great army that David will build when he becomes the king after Saul's killed on Mount Gilboa and as he builds the great kingdom. And so there are a group of men that are with David. And chapter 21 is David trying to get some food for these men that are with him. Are these men afraid of these 600? Well, I, you know, I, I, I can't comment on the individual faith of every one of them. I don't know. But they're one loyal to David. Number two, they're, they believe that God has anointed him to be king and that he is going to be king. So that commitment and loyalty to David is directly or indirectly, depending on how you look at it, loyalty and devotion to God as well. So, I mean, I, I can't comment on your if I don't know. But most of these guys, of uh, these 600, they're going to be with David for the rest of his life. This, this, he's building this. We're going to start seeing the, the numbers and so growing. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But I just wanted to answer that. It might be a question because you're going to see this again in chapter 1. David wants food for his men. So, Where did these men come from? Who are these guys? There's just a group of individuals that have started to coalesce around David. They're following David. They're loyal to David because of what they'd suffered under Saul and so on. <clears throat> so let's, let's look at now verse 1 because it gives us the geography of this. Then David came to Nob. In Hebrew, the B always has a V sound, so it would be really pronounced Nob. To Ahimelech, the priest. Now, a couple of things here. I don't, um, I'm going to do this. You have a map in the note packet, but you may or may not want to look at this. But if you, here's Israel. This is the Galilee Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. Right here is Jerusalem. And right here is Gibeon. That's the capital city of Saul. That's Saul's hometown. That's where the capital is. Nob is a little town right between Gibeah and Jerusalem. That little town is where the, 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 the conflict, a, not the, a concentration of priests. And the head of this concentration of priests, now these priests would be Levites. These are Levitical priests. And these Levites have a leader. His name is Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli. Remember Eli? Please tell me you remember Eli. Do you remember Eli? Okay. Remember that was when Samuel began his life and served at Shiloh and all of that. So this is so this is this is really important. It's just connecting us with things earlier in the book. And so David is fleeing to a spiritual place. David is fleeing to a place of some security, but he's after one thing: food. Himalek came to meet him. David trembling said, and David trembling, and said to him, Himalek saying to David, why are you alone and no one with you? I need to take a sip of coffee. <clears throat> David said then to Himalek priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. 
question. Is that true? That's not true. It's a lie. So David's fear of Saul is leading David to lie to the priest. Because Ahimelech is saying, why are you here? Why have you come to this priestly city? And David makes up this story. The king has charged me. This is deception on the part of David. But remember, David is on the run. David's a fugitive. He's trying to figure out what in the world is God doing here. And I would charge you, make no appointment with the young man for such and such a time. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or wherever is here. And so now you get here. David is deceiving Ahimelech, telling him this false story for one reason. He wants food. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Now that's telling us something. This is really really actually quite surprising. What's the holy bread? This is the show bread that's in the holy place. So what is that telling us? Temporarily, the tabernacle is at Nob. That's what's telling us. That temporary, for some reason, the Bible's silent. We don't know why it's there. But for some reason, the tabernacle's there. Because, now, this is a refresher. I know you know this, but this is a refresher. Remember the tabernacle, the main part of the tabernacle, which was the tent, it was a rectangle, you know. You walk in, you look into the holy place. You walk into the holy, not the holy of holy, but the holy place. On your right is the table of showbread. On your left is the menorah. In the center is the is the incense, the offering. So it's the showbread. It's that table bread, and Jesus will use that and say, I am the bread of life, referring to that. That is indicative or symbolic of me. Well, anyway, so the, the priest is saying, I don't have any regular bread, but I have the showbread. And then he adds, if the young men have kept themselves from women, because if they have had sex in the last 24 hours, they're unclean and can't partake of the showbread. David answered, oh, truly the women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when there's in an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessel be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for which there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now, the, the, the bread, again, it was changed by the priests periodically, and they would take the old bread and replace it with fresh, warm, new bread. It's called, it's called uh, challah. Challah bread is what the Jews call it. And we replace it. So that's what he had. So what he's giving David is not wrong. What he's giving David is not incorrect or unholy because that bread would be given often to the poor or the needy or whatever. So David is getting it. It's really interesting because the Lord Jesus Christ will pick up on this when he's dialoguing with the Pharisees. When they charge his disciples, if you remember, with eating grains of wheat on the Sabbath. And they say to him, your disciples are harvesting on the Sabbath. 
when they're taking some grain, crunching it in their head and, and putting it in their mouth, which is hardly harvested. But that's the technicality of Pharisaic legalism. And Jesus says, you guys are unbelievable. I just added that, but that's the fact we You guys are unbelievable. Don't you remember what David did? When he and his men were hungry, Ahimelech gave him the bread of the holy presence. Because God is interested in meeting human needs because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I am Lord of the, I'm quoting Jesus here, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And to meet the human need of hunger is legitimate. Don't set up your pharisaical legalism. So this event, Jesus will refer to in his public ministry. He's having one of his dialogues with the Pharisees. Now, verse 7 is extremely important. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's not good. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword in hand? Now, if I were Ahimelech, I would say, Now, just a minute, David. Time out. I understand your need for food. You guys, your men are with you. But wait a minute. You, you need weapons? It's almost like he's saying, Just a minute, you left Gibeah without any weapons? For I brought neither sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. True? Another lie. Now look at verse 9. The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, for there's none but that here. David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. Now, if you go back to chapter 17, after David killed Goliath and cut off his head with Goliath's sword, remember that? It says he took the sword near Jerusalem. Now we learn where he took it. This little town where the priests are now, outside of Jerusalem. So Ahimelech gives David Goliath's sword. Time for Sepakai. As I was studying this on Monday, I was reviewing everything, get ready for my classes of the week. It, it hit me again. Boy, that should have been a wake-up call for David. I'm going to hold in my hand the sword of Goliath again, which would cause him to reflect back. Look how faithful the Lord was to me then. When I fought the Philistine giant, nine foot, nine inches tall, and I hit him with my sling as a slinger, and then I cut off his head. God was with me. He's with me again. That's not what David does. Because now David runs. And you know what's going to happen in chapter next? We'll get to that next week, chapter 22. But you know what's going to happen next chapter? He's going to go down to Gath. Go by his hometown and hide there from Saul. The irony of that is unbelievable. But David's fear is overcoming his faith. God is growing his faith. 
365 times in the Bible, God says, do not fear. I am with you. David has to learn that again. David's forgotten that. So David is not ready to be king. His faith has to deepen. God has to grow it. And so this is a lesson. So I just, it's, I, I just, I want you to get in your mind, I know you already have it, but I want to get in your mind the symbolic immensity of now David having Goliath's sword. That should remind him of faithfulness of God. It doesn't. He's still consumed by fear. John, what's the application for us to read uh, this part of the Bible? Don't let fear overcome faith. But remember. Just to remember, if God, it's, this is it's the whole the whole point of New Testament, of Old Testament teaching is. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Remember who I was. Was I faithful to you in the past? Answer, yes. Will I be faithful to you in the present? Yes. Will I be faithful to you in the future? Yes. How many times do you and I have to learn that lesson? I'm, I'm, I'm still learning that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's, but we need to keep reminding ourselves. That's why history is so important. The, the history of our faith is so important. The history in the Bible is so important. The history of our lives is so important. You ask yourself, God says, command 365 times, do not fear, I'm with you. Okay, I read that in the Bible. Is there a legitimate reason for me to believe that? Yeah. In your own life, has God been faithful? Oh, he has. Will he be faithful to you tomorrow? Yes. Okay, let's live that way. David needs to learn that. I mean, this is just, I I'm hope I keep saying this. Because look at the next verse. Verse 10, and David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to the king of Gath, Achish. And chapter 17 of this book tells us that's where Goliath was from. Now listen, man, get this image in your mind. David is walking to the gatehouse of the hometown of Goliath holding Goliath's sword. That's, I mean, in the real meaning of that overused word, that's unbelievable. Isn't it? Nobody agrees with me. But I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I, I mean, I can hardly imagine David doing this. But Saul is out to kill him, and he's demonstrated over and over again. And that consuming fear is triumphing over his faith. And the servants of Achish, now Achish is the king, he's the leader. Remember, all the cities of the ancient world had walls around them. They're like little city-states. So Achish is the leader of that Philistine city. Is not this David the king of the land? I mean, that to me is amazing too. Because the servants of this king of one of the Philistine cities is saying, hey, that's David, the king of the land, which means what? They must have heard that he had been anointed the king. They must have heard somewhere that Saul's out and David's in. I that's I use euphemistic language, you know what I mean? That's they, amazing. Could they just assume he's the king because he killed Goliath? Well, he, well, I think that's part of it, but also that he had been anointed to replace Saul. And then look what they quote. 
Did they not sing one to another? Saul struck us thousands, David is 10,000. They're even repeating one of the songs that Israel sang. I mean, I'm struck by this because these Philistines, now listen, these Philistines are saying something about David that David's forgotten. Could it be that God, speaking through the Philistine servants of the king of Achish, the king of Gath, is reminding you, David, remember who you are. Remember what I said about you. Doesn't phase David. So he's holding, I mean, I, I, this is just, and it's so unimaginable to me, but David is at the gatehouse of Gath, the hometown of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword. Not in triumph. But in humiliation, fear, self-pity, and defeat. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. You can picture that word, picture in your mind, can't you, what he would have looked like? And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? It's a great quote. Do I lack lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Meaning no. So David fakes mental illness to avoid being killed. Because now he's going to run to a cave, the cave of Adullam, which we'll get to in just a minute. Later on, David will write Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 about this experience. You ask this question, what did David learn from this humiliating, self-pity, remorseful, agonizing, it's all about me, Read Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. This is what he learned. God is teaching David lessons. And later on, David will reflect. This is what I learned. There's a lot in each one of those psalms. But you see, that's the value of the psalms and connecting them with events in David's life. Does he learn what God wants him to learn? Read the psalms. All right. Okay, no, it's either silence means you're totally with me or I've lost you about 10 minutes ago, but I'm assuming you're with me. All right. Now, what I want you to look here, as you move into chapter, there are two things that are going to go on here. But first of all, because of the situation that David's in, he correctly thinks about preserving his family. So that's what the first part of chapter 22 is about. David departed from there, meaning Gath, and escaped or fled to the cave of Adullam. Adullam is about 10 miles southeast of Gath. Here, Gath would be about here approximately on the map. And so the caves are going to be here. That's where he's hiding out. But he doesn't go very far. 
But he's hiding. These are there's, these are very rugged, kind of uh, uh, deep caves. So he's hiding there. And when his brothers and all his father's house <coughs> heard it, they went down there with him. So now David's family is hiding with him in these caves southeast of Gath. Verse 2, this is very, very important. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Bitter in soul could be translated discontented. And he became captain over them. And were with him about 400 men. As we get further into the text, it's going to grow an additional 200 to 600. But this group, this is the core of what will become David's army. Now, that, that's, a, that's a fairly significant number of people. But every one of those that distress, in debt, and discontented, these are individuals that have experienced some of the oppression and exploitation of Saul through taxation, through conscription, or through the confiscation of the land. And so now what are they returning to David? And they are developed this, this core of initially 400, and what we're going to read about later on, they're going to bring their families with them. We'll get to some of that in a minute. Some of this we'll be dealing with after Christmas, so don't forget some of this. But so this is this is telling us this is a very, very important piece of information. David is building a support base. It's 400. It's pretty significant. But these are individuals who have experienced a lot of the oppression of Saul's kingdom, and they're turning to David for support. He will build this loyal band of brothers to borrow a phrase from World War II, loyal band of brothers that will be the core of what he's going to do as he becomes king of Mexico. Um, and so this before he becomes 600, are they seeing the faith of David, and are they finding faith in, them, in God through David because of what they see in David? <clears throat> I'm not sure if if that would be the case in every one of them, their, their, their situation, because they have suffered under Saul and they're looking to David. Now, again, it's fairly well known. I don't know how, how broadly I can say this with accuracy, but it's fairly well known what had happened. David killed Goliath. David becomes a great hero. He, Saul sends him out. He does lots of very successful military raids against Philistine garrisons. He's killed a lot of Philistines. And even with that, that he is going to be the next kid. So it, uh, it isn't all just a, a spiritual, I see the faith of David, I want my faith to be, I don't, I'm not sure that's necessarily the motivation. They're seeing David as a, uh, a savior, as someone that can, can secure them from all of the, the inequities of Saul's reign. But they will learn. I mean, they will learn faith. And these are at the, at the end of Second Samuel. There, the whole chapter is devoted to all the loyal men of David. These people, their names are in the Bible. We don't know them, but their names—they're important to God. Their names will be. They're in that near the end of Second Samuel, and we'll see a lot of those guys in heaven. But at this point, I can't answer the question. I I, I doubt very strongly that they're seeing David as a great model of faith. 
Because at this point in David's life, David is not a great model of faith. He's running. <laughs> but notice, so don't, so don't forget these verses. This is the core of David's base of support. This will be the core of his army. Verse 3, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Now, this is really important because what this means, David is going from here. Moab is over here. Moab is a kingdom outside of Saul's kingdom. Who's from Moab? Who do you know is from Moab? You know, you just don't know you know. Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. Who's Ruth? David's great, great, great grandmother. Remember, Ruth married Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth had a bunch of kids, and Jesse's going to come from them. And who's Jesse? David's father. So David is going back to his great, I think it's great, great, great grandmother. I think that's the right number of greats. Back there. Why, why would he go there? Tells us. He said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Now, I want you to notice two things there. Number one, David is very wise here. He's protecting his family. Because logically and probably correctly, Saul is saying, I may not be able to get David, but I'll get his family. So David wants to protect his mom and dad and, and presumably other members of the extended family. But the second thing I want you to notice is we haven't seen this for a while. What does he say? Until I know what God will do for me. David's got lots of question marks. What is God doing? God made a lot of promises to me. I'm supposed to be the king. Samuel anointed me. But nothing that's happening to me makes any sense. So I want to find out what God is doing. So there's both a positive aspect to this, and there's a negative aspect to this. The negative aspect is David is questioning God. That is not necessarily evidence of strong, deep faith. But the positive aspect of it is, is David still acknowledges that God's at work in his life. I just can't figure out what he's doing. So, King Moab, will you protect my family? Well, I try to figure out what God is doing. <laughs> Because I'm really afraid that Saul's going to take and get my family, and I don't want that to happen. So will you protect them? And remember, there is a family connection to Moab because Ruth was a Moabite. She was from Moab. Remember all that? Remember the connection? Yep. Okay. And so verse 4, he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed there all the time that David was in the stronghold. The, strong, the word for stronghold in Hebrew is Masada. Does that ring a bell to you? Masada is that little plateau down in, in, on the uh, west side of the Dead Sea. So that, this is just, just a lot going on here that we skip over and read real quickly, and I don't want you to read, I skip over it real quickly. All right, now, I only have a few more minutes left. So I want to, tr uh, I'm never going to get this done. 
Um, but we're still going to start it. Okay, first of all, verse 5. Then the prophet Gad. Now, don't forget him. We're introduced to one of the prophets that will serve David. Gad, who's the other prophet? Nathan. Remember him? So David has, Nathan, this, this gets us into 2 Samuel. Nathan will be the one that will confront David after his sin with Bathsheba and so on. But anyway, this is, this is one of these fascinating things that drives me crazy about the Bible. All of a sudden, this guy shows up. Who is he? Where did he come from? Some expositors, and I think this is legitimate, some expositors suggest Samuel sent Gad to David. Samuel's still alive. Samuel's very old. He's, he's soon going to die. But that, and I think this is a reasonable, uh, reasonable inference that Samuel sent Gad, a prophet, to David. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the point is, David said to the king of Moab, I've got to figure out what God is doing. And so the next verse says why? The prophet Gad shows up. And he said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. The Masada, Masada on the west shore of the Sea of uh, Dead Sea. Don't stay there. Go into the land of Judah, which is the land of Judah is here, this large area. Now, let's think about that. First of all, God is answering David, trying to figure out what God is doing here. He says to the king of Moab. Then Samuel, let's just pretend, or at least logically conclude, that Samuel sent Gad, whether he did or not, Gad shows up. Gad, by the way, will be with David for the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 29 tells us that Gad wrote a biography of David. That's not in Khan, it's not in the Bible, but he, that, he used to become a very, very important counselor to David. That's beside the point. And says, now listen, God does not want you to stay in Masada. God wants you to go into the land of Judah. Now, why? Why was it important that, God, that David go into the land of Judah? Two reasons. Reason number one, David is of the tribe of Judah. Right? You all know that. Second, David is going to be king, and David needs a base of support. And that base of support is his home tribe. So David go into the deep forest of Herat in the mountains of Judah. That's what that forest of Herat. In the deep forest, thick forest of the mountains of Judah. Remember, Judah, Judah's high. It's kind of above. It's not like the coast. It's not like the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below. It's 25, 26, 2,800 feet above sea level. So hide in the forest of Herat. Begin to build your base of support there. Now, we're going to see what happens. It's tragic what happens next. So you have a variety of things going on in these first five verses of chapter 22. First of all, you have David gathering around him 400 men, the discontented, 
debt-ridden, depressed vagabonds of Saul's reign. They will be the loyal core, and eventually grow to 600, the loyal core of David's army. Second, he takes his family, his extended family, to Moab. And third, in the answer to his prayer, I'm trying to figure out what God is doing. God sends the prophet Gad, get out of Masada and go to the forest of Judah. But then something else happens. David is going to have to live with the consequences of what he did to the priests at Nob. Saul is going to find out. How does Saul find out about what David did at Nob? From Doeg the Edomite. Remember that? We read that? Doeg the Edomite, who was head of Saul's flocks, head over his flock. He must have been there selling sheep or something or giving sheep for the offerings, whatever it was. He sees all that's happened. So look look with me. Uh, I'm not going to get this done, but we'll get started. We'll pick it up next week. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, the 400 men that we just read about, Saul was sitting at Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah is the capital of his kingdom. That's his hometown. That's the capital. Under the tamarisk tree, on the height of his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing without him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of your fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, (coughs) that all of you have conspired against me? No one disclosed to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me. I'm adding, get it? Discloses to me, to, to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. So lie and wait is this day. So before we get to verse nine, what words would you use to describe Saul here? He's wallowing in self-pity. Why do you guys, you never tell me what's going on. I mean, it's some bullies, the king. But you see this delusional paranoia of Saul. He has distrust of everyone. That's delusional paranoia. He doesn't trust anyone. And so he's hurling this charge. Would, would, would David give you what I've given you? Would David do for you what I mean, it's all this crazy stuff. And then, Verse 9, Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitu. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I want to make two comments. Comment number one. If you go back to the previous chapter, David did not ask Ahimelech to inquire of the Lord for him. So that's a lie. Two, he did give him provisions. Three, he did give him the sword of Goliath. So Doeg, presumably, although I'm not sure, is presumably enhancing what he says to add that little tidbit 
He also asked Ahimelech to pray to the Lord, to pray to Yahweh, because the Lord there is Yahweh for him. <clears throat> so among all of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeah is in Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, Doeg steps up. I can help you. I know where he is. I know what's happened. If you want to find out what happens next, you got to come back next week. Oh, I'd love to be able to end class like that. <laughs> All right. Because I'll never get the rest of this done because it's, it's already uh, past our time. But are you with me? This is, I, I, this is how I'm trying to teach this. I'm, I'm wanting you to see here through this narrative of what God is doing in David's life. David's allowing, excuse me, God is allowing David to hit a low point here. I mean, this is not one of the great moments in David's life. I mean, it really isn't. But uh, you go back to that previous section that we read in verse 4. He's trying to figure out what is God doing here. So he's not turning his back on God necessarily, but he is not trusting. He's trusting his own resources. It's going to get him in trouble. And so we'll see some of the consequences of that next week, and we'll move into chapter 23, and uh, then we'll be done until the Christmas break. All right? Where do you want to pick up? Uh, I, I want to pick up in verse 11. All right. <clears throat> yeah, I want to pick up in verse 11. All right, let me pray here, Father. Thank you, dear Father, for teaching us through the study of David to not be afraid, to not fear. 365 times you tell us that in your word. Do not fear, I'm with you, but to be men of faith. Lord, it's so easy to say that. Lord, we want to pray it with all the sincerity and conviction that we can muster. But Lord, help us to believe that and to live that. It is so easy to be afraid. It's so easy to be afraid of the future, to be uncertain about things. But Lord, our focus is to be on you and to trust you. Not the circumstances around us, not the details of the circumstances. You are a God who cares for us, and you promised that I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. So, Lord, help us to be men of faith. We're learning what that means. We're all in process. But this is an important lesson because we see what David's trying to figure out what you're doing. These are not great events of faith in his life, but he's learning. He needs to learn these lessons to be the king, and that's what you're teaching him. So, Lord, give us the kind of grace that you showered on David to become and to be and to live out the men of faith you're calling us to be, regardless of our age, to be the men of faith that honor you, that bring glory to you, and serve you. So I trust these men here in the room as well as those guys online to be the men of faith you're calling us to be, to honor you and to represent you well in the world in which you call us to be, your light and your salt in Jesus' name.